"'I don't think that's necessary, Uncle,' said Tom. "'At least, I mean it would not be necessary for me, "'because I know Bob well. "'But perhaps it would be right for you to have some security. "'You get your percentage out of the purchase, I suppose?' "'said Mr. Glegg, looking at Bob. "'No, sir,' said Bob, rather indignantly. "'I didn't offer to get an apple for Mr. Tom.' a purpose to have a bite out of it myself. When I play folks' tricks, there'll be more fun in em nor that. Well, but it's nothing but right you should have a small percentage, said Mr. Glegg. I've no opinion o transactions where folks do things for nothing. It allays looks bad. Well then, said Bob, whose keenness saw at once what was implied. I'll tell you what, I get bite, and it's money in my pocket in the end. I make myself look big, with making a bigger purchase. That's what I'm thinking on. Laws, I'm a cute chap, I am. Mr. Glegg, Mr. Glegg, said a severe voice from the open parlour window. Pray, are you coming in to tea, or are you going to stand talking with Packman till you get murdered in the open daylight? Murdered? said Mr. Glegg. What's that woman talking of? Here's your nephew Tom come about a bit of business. Murdered? Yes, it is a many sizes ago since the packman murdered a young woman in a lone place and stole her thimble and threw her body into a ditch. Nah, nah, said Mr. Glegg, soothingly. You're thinking of the man with no legs as drove a dog cart. Well, It's the same thing, Mr. Glegg, only you're fond of contradicting what I say, and if my nephew's come about business, it ought to be fitting if you'd bring him into the house and let his aunt know about it, instead of whispering in corners in that plotting, undermining way. Well, well, said Mr. Glegg, we'll come in now. You needn't stay here, said the lady to Bob, in a loud voice. adapting to the morale, not the physical distance between them. We don't want anything. I don't deal with Packman. Mind you shut the gate after you. Stop a bit, not so fast, said Mr. Glegg. I haven't done with this young man yet. Come in, Tom, come in, he added, stepping in at the French window. Mr. Glegg, said Mrs. G, in a fatal tone, If you're going to let that man and his dog in on my carpet before my very face, be so good as to let me know. A wife's got a right to ask that, I hope. Don't you be uneasy, mum, said Bob, touching his cap. He saw at once that Mrs. Glegg was a bit of game worth running down, and longed to be at the sport. We'll stay out upon the gravel here. Mumps and me will. Mumps knows his company, he does. I might hish him in by the hour together before he'd fly at a real gentlewoman like you. It's wonderful how he knows which is the good-looking ladies, and's particular fond of em when they're good shapes. Laws, added Bob, laying down his pack on the gravel. It's a thousand pities such a lady as you shouldn't deal with a packman. I stead a going into these new-fangled shops,
where there's half a dozen fine gents with their chins propped up with a stiff stock, a-looking like bottles with ornamental stoppers, and all got to get their dinner out of a bit of calico. It stands to reason you must pay three times the price you pay a packman, as it's the natural way of getting goods, and pays no rent, and isn't forced to throttle himself till the lies are squeezed out on him, whether he will or no. But, laws, mum, you know what it is better, nor I do. You can see through them shopmen, I'll be bound. Yes, I reckon I can, and through the packman too, observed Mrs. Glegg, intending to imply that Bob's flattery had produced no effect on her, while her husband, standing behind her with his hands in his pockets and legs apart, winked and smiled with conjugal delight at the probability of his wife's being circumvented. I, to be sure, mum, said Bob, why, you must have dealt with no end of packmen when you were a young lass, before the master here had the luck to set eyes on you. I know where you lived, I do, seen the house many a time, close up Squire Darley's, a stone house with steps. Ah, that it had, said Mrs. Glegg, pouring out the tea. You know something of my family, then? Are you akin to that packman with a squint in his eye, as used to bring the Irish linen? Look you there now, said Bob, evasively. Didn't I know, as you'd remember the best bargains you've made in your life was made with packmen? Why, you see, even a squintin' packman's better, nor a shopman, as can see straight. Laws, if I had the luck to call at the stone house with my pack, as lies here, stooping and thumbing the bundle emphatically with his fist, ah, and the handsome young lasses all standing around on the stone steps, it had been something like opening a pack that would. It's only the poor houses now as a packman calls on, if it isn't for the sake of the servant maids. They're poultry times, these are. Why, mum, look at the printed cottons now, and what they was when you wore em. Why, you wouldn't put such a thing on now, I can see. It must be first-rate quality, the manufacture as you'd buy, something as you'd wear as well as your own features. Yes, better quality nor any you're likely to carry. You've got nothing first-rate but brazenness. I'll be bound, said Mrs. Glegg, with a triumphant sense of her insurmountability sagacity. Mr. Glegg, are you going ever to sit down to your tea? Tom, there's a cup for you. You speak true there, mum, said Bob. My pack isn't for ladies like you. The time's gone by for that. Bargains picked up dirt cheap. A bit of damage here and there, as can be cut out or else never seen either wearin', but not fit to offer to rich folks as can pay for the look of things as nobody sees. I'm not the man as you'd offer to open my pack to you. Mum, no, no, I'm an imperent chap, as you say. These times make folks imperent, but I'm not up to the mark of that. Why, what goods do you carry in your pack? said Mrs. Glegg 
Fine-coloured things, I suppose. Shawls and that? All sorts, Mum, all sorts, said Bob, thumping his bundle. But let us say no more about that, if you please. I'm here upon Mr. Tom's business, and I'm not the man to take up the time with my own. And pray, what is the business as it is to be kept from me? said Mrs. Glegg, who, solicited by a double curiosity, was obliged to let the one half wait. A little plan o' nephew's Tom's here, said good-natured Mr. Glegg, and not altogether a bad un, I think. A little plan for making money. That's the right sort of plan for young folks, as have got their fortune to make. Eh, Jane? But I hope it isn't a plan where he expects everything to be done for him by his friends. That's what the young folks think of mostly nowadays. And pray, what has this packman got to do with it? What goes in our family? Can't you speak for yourself, Tom, and let your aunt know things as a nephew should? This is Bob Jakin, aunt, said Tom, bridling the irritation that Aunt Glegg's voice always produced. I've known him ever since we were little boys. He's a very good fellow, and always ready to do me a kindness, and he has had some experience in sending goods out. A small part of a cargo as a private speculation, and he thinks if I could begin to do a little in the same way, I might make some money. A large interest is got in that way. Large interest, said Aunt Glegg, with eagerness. And what do you call large interest? Ten or twelve per cent, Bob says, after expenses are paid. Then why wasn't I let to know of such things before, Mr. Glegg, said Mrs. Glegg, turning to her husband, with a deep grating tone of reproach. Haven't you always told me as there was no getting more nor five per cent. Pooh, pooh, nonsense, my good woman, said Mr. Glegg. You couldn't go into trade, could you? You can't get more than five per cent with security. But I can turn a bit of money for you, and welcome, Mum, said Bob, if you'd like to risk it. Not as there's any risk to speak on, but if you'd a mind to lend a bit of money to Mr. Tom, He'd pay you six, seven per cent, and get a trifle for himself as well. And good-natured lady like you, you'd like to feel of the money better if your nephew took part on it. What do you say, Mrs. G? said Mr. Glegg. I've a notion, when I've made a bit more inquiry, as I shall perhaps start Tom here with a bit of a nest egg, he'll pay me interest, you know. And if you've got some little sums lying idle, twisted up in a stocking toe, or that, Mr. Glegg, it's beyond everything. You'll go and give information to the tramps next, as they may come and rob me. Well, well, as I was saying, if you like to join me with twenty pounds, you can. I'll make it fifty. That'll be a pretty good nest egg, eh, Tom? You're not counting on me, Mr. Glegg, I hope, said his wife. You could do fine things with my money, I don't doubt. Very well, said Mr. Glegg, rather snappishly. 
Then we'll do without you. I shall go with you to see this salt, he added, turning to Bob. And now, I suppose you'll go all the other way, Mr. Glee, said Mrs. G, and want to shut me out of my own nephew's business. I never said I wouldn't put money into it. I don't say as it shall be twenty pounds, though you're so ready to say it for me. But he'll see some day as his aunt's in the right not to risk the money she's saved for him till it's proved as it won't be lost. Ay, that's a pleasant sort of risk, that is, said Mr. Gleek, indiscreetly winking at Tom, who couldn't avoid smiling. But Bob stemmed the injured lady's outburst. Ay, ma'am, he said admiringly, you know what's what, you do. And it's nothing but fair. You see how the first bit of a job answers, and then you'll come down handsome. Laws, it's a fine thing to have good kin. I got my bit of a nest egg, as the master calls it, all by my own sharpness. Ten sovereigns, it was, with dousing the fire at Torrey's Mill, and it's growed and growed by a bit and a bit till I'd got a matter of thirty pound to lay out, besides making my mother comfortable. I should get more, only I'm such a soft with the women. I can't help letting them have such good bargains. There's this bundle now, thumping it lustily. Any other chap'd make a great penny out of it, but me, laws, I shall sell em for pretty near what I paid for em. Have you got a bit of good net now? said Mrs. Glegg, in a patronising tone, moving from the tea table and folding her napkin. Ay, ma'am, not what you'd think it worth your while to look at. I'd scorn to show it you. It'd be an insult to you. But let me see, said Mrs. Glegg, still patronising. If they're damaged goods, they're like enough to be a bit the better quality. No, mum, I know my place, said Bob, lifting up his pack and shouldering it. I'm not going to expose the lowness of my trade to a lady like you. Packs has come down in the world. It'd cut you to the heart to see the difference. I'm at your service, sir, when you've in mind to go and see salt. All in good time, said Mr. Glegg, really unwilling to cut short the dialogue. Are you wanted at the wharf, Tom? No, sir, I left Stowe in my place. Come, put down your pack and let me see, said Mrs. Glegg, drawing a chair to the window and seating herself with much dignity. Don't you ask it, mum, said Bob entreatingly. Make no words, said Mrs. Glegg severely, but do as I tell you. Eh, ma'am, I'm loath. That I am, said Bob, slowly depositing his pack on the step and beginning to untie it with unwilling fingers. But what you order shall be done, much fumbling in pauses between the sentences. It's not as you'll buy a single thing on me. I'd be sorry for you to do it, but think of them poor women up in the villages there, as never stir a hundred yards from home. It'd be a pity for anybody to buy up their bargains. Laws, it's as good as a junketing to them when they see me with my pack, and I shall never pick up such bargains for em again. 
Leastways, I've no time now, for I'm off to lace em. See here now, Bob went on, becoming rapid again, and holding up a scarlet woolen kerchief with an embroidered wreath in the corner. Here's a thing to make a lass's mouth water, and only two shillin'. And why? Why? Cause there's a bit of a moth hole in its plain ends. Laws, I think the moths and the mildew were sent by Providence of purpose to cheapen the goods a bit for the good-looking woman as hadn't got much money. If it hadn't been for the moths, now every handkerchief on em it had gone to the rich, handsome ladies like you, mum, at five shillings apiece, not a farthing less. But what does the moth do? Why, it nibbles off three shilling of the price in no time. And them a packman like me can carry to the poor lasses as live under the dark thack to make a bit of blaze for em. Lors, it's as good as a fire to look at such handkerchief. Bob held it at a distance for admiration, but Mrs. Glegg said sharply, Yes, but nobody wants a fire this time of year. Put these coloured things by. Let me look at your nets, if you've got em. Eh, mum, I told you how it'd be, said Bob, flinging aside the coloured things with an air of desperation. I'd know it'd turn you again, you to look at such poultry articles as I carry. Here's a piece of figured muslin now. What's the use of you looking at it? You might as well look at poor folks' victual, mum. It'd only take away your appetite. There's a yard in the middle on to the pattern, all missed. Lord, why it's a muslin as the Princess Victoria might have wore, but, added Bob, flinging it behind him on to the turf, as if to save Mrs. Glegg's eyes. It'll be bored up by the hunkster's wife at Fib's end. That's where it'll go ten shillin' for the whole lot, ten yards counting. The damage and five and twenty shillin', you'd have been the price, not a penny less. But I'll say no more, mum. It's nothing to you, a piece of muslin like that. You can afford to pay three times the money for a thing as isn't half so good. It's nets you talked on. Well, I've got a piece as you'll serve to make fun on. Bring me that muslin, said Mrs. Glee. It's a buff. I'm partial to buff. Eh, but it's damaged thing, said Bob, in a tone of deprecating disgust. You'd do nothing with it, mum. You'd give it to the cook. I know you would. And it'd be a pity. She'd look too much like a lady in it. It's unbecoming for servants. Fetch it, and let me see you measure it, said Mrs. Glegg, authoritatively. Bob obeyed with ostentatious reluctance. See what there is over measure, he said, holding forth the extra half yard, while Mrs. Glegg was busy examining the damaged yard, and throwing her head back to see how far the fault would be lost on a distant view. I'll give you six shilling for it, she said, throwing it down with the air of a person who mentions an ultimatum. Didn't I tell you now, mum? as it'd hurt your feelings to look at my pack. That damaged bit's turned your stomach now, I see it has, said Bob, wrapping the muslin up with the utmost quickness, 
and apparently about to fasten up his pack. You're used to seeing a different sort of article carried by packmen when you lived at the stone house. Packs has come down in the world, I told you that. My goods are for common folks. Mrs. Pepper will give me ten shillings for that muslin, and be sorry as I didn't ask her more. Such articles answer either wearing. They keep their colour till the threads melt away in the wash tub, and that won't be while I'm a young un. Well, seven shillings, said Mrs. Glegg. Put it out o' your mind, mum, now do, said Bob. Here's a bit of net, then, for you to look at before I tie up my pack, just for you to see what my trade's come to, spotted and sprigged. You see, beautiful, but yellow. S been lying, by and got the wrong colour. I could never have bought such net if it hadn't been yellow. Laws, it's took me a deal of study to know the value of such articles. When I began to carry a pack, I was as ignorant as a pig. Net or calico was all the same to me. I thought them things the most valley was the thickest. I was took in dreadful, for I'm a straightforward chap. Up to no tricks, mum. I can only say my nose is my own, for if I went beyond, I should lose myself pretty quick. And I give five and eightpence for that piece of net. If I was to tell you anything else, I should be telling you fibs, and five and eightpence I shall ask for it. Not a penny more, for it's a woman's article, and I like to accommodate the women. Five and eightpence for six yards, as cheap as if it was only the dirt on it was paid for. I don't mind having three yards of it, said Mrs. Glegg. Why, there's but six altogether, said Bob. No, mum, it isn't worth your while. You can go to the shop tomorrow and get the same pattern ready whitened. It's only three times the money. What's that to a lady like you? He gave an emphatic tie to his bundle. Come, lay me out that muslin, said Mrs. Glegg. Here's eight shilling for it. You will be joking, said Bob, looking up with a laughing face. I see you was a pleasant lady when I first come to the window. Well, put it me out, said Mrs. Glegg peremptorily. But if I let you have it for ten shilling, mum, you'll be so good as not telling nobody. I should be a laughing sock. The trade you'd hoot me, if they knowed it. I'm obliged to make believe as I ask more, nor I do for my goods, else they'd find out I was a flat. I'm glad you don't insist upon buying the net, for then I should have lost my two best bargains for Mrs. Pepper of Fibs End, and she's a rare customer. Let me look at the net again, said Mrs. Glegg, yearning after the cheap spots and sprigs. Now they were vanishing. Well, I can't deny you, Mum, said Bob, handing it out. Eh, see what a pattern now, real lace and goods. Now this is the sort of article I'm recommending, Mr. Tom, to send out. Laws, it's a finer thing for anybody as got a bit of money. These lacing goods you'd make, it breed like maggots. If I was a lady with a bit of money, why, I know one as put thirty pounds into them goods, a lady with a cork leg, but as sharp you wouldn't catch her running her head into a sack. 
She'd see her way clear out of anything afore she'd be in a hurry to start. Well, she let out thirty pounds to a young man in the drapery line, and he laid it out a lace and goods, and a supercargo's of my acquaintance, not salt, took em out, and she got her eight percent first go off. And now you can't hold her, but she must be sending out cargies with every ship till she's getting as rich as a Jew. Bucks her name is, she doesn't live in this town. Now then, mum, if you'll please to give me the net. Here's fifteen shillings then for the two, said Mrs. Glee, but it's a shameful price. No, mum, you'll never see that when you're up your knees in church at five years' time. I'm making you a present of the articles I am indeed. That eightpence shaves off my profits as clean as a razor. Now then, sir, continued Bob, shouldering his pack, if you please, I'll be glad to go and see about making Mr. Tom Sporton. Ah, I wish I'd got another twenty pound to lay out, my son. I shouldn't stay to say my catechism afore I know what to do with. Stop a bit, Mr. Glegg, said the lady, as her husband took his hat. You never will give me the chance of speaking. You'll go away now, and finish everything about this business, and come back and tell me it's too late for me to speak, as if I wasn't my nephew's own aunt, and the head of the family on his mother's side, and laid my guineas all full weight for him, as he'll know who to respect when I'm laid in my coffin. Well, Mrs. G, say what you mean, said Mr. G hastily. Well, then, I desire as nothing may be done without my knowing. I don't say as I shan't venture twenty pounds, if you'd make out as everything's right and safe. And if I do, Tom, concluded Mrs. Glegg, turning impressively to her nephew, I hope you'll allays bear it in mind, and be grateful for such an aunt. I mean you to pay me interest, you know. I don't approve of giving. We never looked for that in my family. Thank you, aunt, said Tom, rather proudly. I prefer having the money only lent to me. Very well, that's the Dodson spirit, said Mrs. Glegg, rising to get her knitting with the sense that any further remark after this would be bathos. Salt, the eminently briny chap, having been discovered in a cloud of tobacco smoke at the anchor tavern, Mr. Glegg commenced inquiries, which turned out satisfactorily enough to warrant the advance of the nest egg, to which Aunt Glegg contributed twenty pounds. And in this modest beginning you see the ground of a fact which might otherwise surprise you, namely Tom's accumulation of a fund, unknown to his father, that promised in no very long time to meet the more tardy process of saving, and quite cover the deficit. When once his attention had been turned to this source of gain, Tom determined to make the most of it, and lost on opportunity of obtaining information and extending his small enterprises. In not telling his father, he was influenced by that strange mixture of opposite feelings 
which often gives equal truth to those who blame an action and those who admire it. Partly, it was that disinclination to confidence which is seen between near kindred, that family repulsion which spoils the most sacred relations of our lives. Partly, it was the desire to surprise his father with a great joy. He did not see that it would have been better to soothe the interval with a new hope and prevent the delirium of a too sudden elation. At the time of Maggie's first meeting with Philip, Tom had already nearly a hundred and fifty pounds of his own capital, and while they were walking by the evening light in the red deeps, he, by the same evening light, was riding into Laysom, proud of being on his first journey on behalf of Guest and Co., and revolving in his mind all the chances that by the end of another year he should have doubled his gains, lifted off the obloquy of debt from his father's name, and perhaps, for he should be twenty-one, have got a new start for himself on a higher platform of employment. Did he not desire it? He was quite sure that he did. End of Book 5 Chapter 2